Stay hungry. Stay foolish. It's finished recording part two of Yes to the Mess with Frank Barrett. We said we'd be back for part two. Frank has finally gotten some time to give us absolute cracking episode before we get into the 11 practices of getting to the mess creating the right structures and practices for an organization for innovation i want to thank our sponsor zai boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services enabling businesses to move funds with ease and enable multiple payment workflows you can check out zai at hellozai.com let's get into the mess The premise of today's book is that nurturing spontaneity, creativity, experimentation and dynamic synchronization is no longer an optional approach to leadership. It is the only approach. The current velocity of change demands nothing less. It demands paying attention to the mental models, the cultural beliefs and the values, the practices and structures that support improvisation. It is a great pleasure to welcome back for part two of what was a magnificent part one, the author of Yes to the Mess, Surprising Leadership Lessons from Jazz, Frank Barrett. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. Great to see you. Great to have you back, Frank. I was telling you before we came on air, and I want to let our audience know as well. I've never seen such velocity of a show getting to a critical mass ever before on this show. And Frank, during the week, he's like, send me the link, I'll send it to my audience on my newsletter. And I was like, oh, what you didn't already <laughs> so so it was great man and i was so delighted to see it reach so many people because it's a cracking book there's one on the shelf there behind me and i absolutely love it today we're going to focus on the part we didn't get to which is chapter 8 and frank has kindly agreed to come back for chapter 8 and this is the 11 practices that bring yes to the mess to life for organizations. And I thought, Frank, what we do is in the true parlance that you had taught me through this book, we would do a solo and support for each of the 11 practices. So I'll give a little solo to spark the idea for you. And you take it away and let our audience know what it is. If you're in agreement for that, let's get into solo and support. (laughs) Sounds good. Let's do it. So number one, is approach leadership tasks as experiments. My little solo goes as follows. Business gurus would have us believe that the essence of leadership can be captured in a list. The seven qualities of great leaders, the five steps to leading change and so on. But leadership is much more complicated and unpredictable than all that. Even when leaders find a solution that gets desired results, it is only a temporary landing spot. Given the pace and depth of change, leaders have no choice but to improvise. Perhaps the greatest contribution a leader can make to any organization is to build the competency in anticipation and adaptation. I absolutely love that. That's my solo. Over to you, Frank. Uh, To support the point that um, the importance of experimentation in organizations, you know, usually, um, you know, I, I teach from the U.S. Navy, and the Navy is an amazing organization. But the mindset is you get all your learning out of the way um, and then make all your mistakes, and then you perform, and then you execute. But I think what I'm suggesting here is that we should be doing experimentation in an ongoing way. And there's something about running experiments um, that heightens, enhances our awareness. 
And part of the reason is, is because it sets up little comparisons. You pay attention in a new way when you're doing an experiment. Um, you're in a mind, mindset of discovery and you're testing to see where how things show up when you're if they think about it, try it in your own life when you're trying an experiment try something novel you've never done before a new figure emerges from the ground and you pay attention usually you can feel it in your body because you, you pay attention to nuances that you just hadn't noticed before and part of the reason is because of the the way comparison works when you're doing an experiment you're comparing the expected with what's novel. You, you're holding up a figure on ground and, and you pay more attention to what emerges. I remember a story once, um, and I think Carl White told this story. He said, next time you go to an art museum, um, if you really want to notice the features of a work of art, bring a postcard that has a picture of that work of art and hold the postcard up against the painting and you'll notice new details in the painting you wouldn't have noticed before. It's a little, you know, the comparison brings out nuances. It's a way we kind of play tricks with ourselves um, because left to our own devices, we go to, into habit <clears throat> and the world becomes flat. I love that, Frank. And thanks for bringing it to life. I, I'll keep moving because Frank's on unlimited time. He's on teaching over on the west side of the US at the moment. So we're going to get through these with solos and supports all the way through apart, apart from one and I'll tell you why when we reach that one. But number two is boost information processing in the midst of action. Jazz players act their way into the future, then justify their actions by placing their statements within a context of meaning. It's only by looking back at what they've created, for example, that soloists realize how the notes, phrases and chords can relate organizations can learn a lot from them. Absolutely love this one, Frank. I, I always go to Kierkegaard, who says, you know, we live our lives forward, but we make sense of it backward. And both are necessary. So experimentation is moving forward. It's like living your life forward, you know, mindset of discovery. But what's equally important is making sense of what just happened. And that means and it's much better if we can involve others in that sense making. And that's what organizations need to get better at doing to boost information processing in anticipation, in the process of and in consequence after an action. So for example, in anticipation, you know, doing running virtual scenarios, running virtual planning scenarios, things that are highly unlikely. And just seeing what would it be like if this happened, like um, Shell Oil did in the 60s when they ran the their famous scenarios saying what happens if there's you know um a, 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 a oil war and prices go haywire well at that point no one had ever thought that was possible but shell oil made this outrageous scenario and ran through it and what happened was it surfaced all kinds of assumptions that everybody was holding about the world and it let them vicariously run through uh, various possibilities. It made their responsiveness to that that much richer. They had a greater repertoire of actions when when the unexpected did happen. Um, and I think about, I think the one example I talk about is uh, what Don Shuler did with the Miami Dolphins. Um, you know, after a game, um, this is pretty common that you look at videos, films of, the, of a football game or whatever sport, 
and deconstruct what happened in the play um, and what moves worked, what didn't work. And usually you just you go by group and you watch your own plays. So the defensive line will watch the defensive line plays. So, uh, defensive backfield will watch theirs. But what Don Shula did is he mixed and matched them. So he put a quarterback in with the defensive backs. And why? Because um, they can see novelty that others couldn't see. They'll notice things that have become background information for you and something else will emerge. It creates um, richer possibilities. In, in the, the Marines have this phrase called hot wash. Um, after they do a scenario or an action or um, do a trial somewhere, um, everybody gathers and they, do, they hot wash it, meaning they wash it all down and say, okay, what worked, what didn't work. And, and during those sense-making sessions, what's important is that status barriers are lowered because um, people have to be free to say whatever they notice, to say it out loud and not be worried that I'm going to offend uh, superior and they'd be more interest more worried about saying the right thing to their boss rather than being able to say okay here's here's what we could have done different i mean we do it's good when you do it for yourself like say here's what i see that, that i could have done differently um but it's also good when you can notice what is going on with others and again that means lowering status barriers there's a there was hospital in um in the New England area, where um, it was, it, they they raided you know, when they were looking at the culture around leadership and coworker support, culture and leadership. The story um, at the end of the day, this particular hospital feels morally obligated to do a hot wash. They don't call it that, but to go back over what that happened that day. And one day, a surgeon says out loud, I made a mistake in surgery today and I left a sponge inside a patient. And I'm um, I'm really sorry, I'm embarrassed, and I'll make sure it doesn't happen again. But you could hear a pin drop in that room because in hospitals are high status organizations. There's a lot of variance in status and, and even, you know, doctors and nurses, it's gendered. So most of the doctors are male. Most of the nurses are female. That's already a, a hierarchy. Um, but even within physicians, there's a hierarchy, right? And surgeons are the top. Um, you know, anesthesiologists are down towards the bottom. You know, the high risk, what is perceived as a high risk position. You know, the surgeon is always considered God. So when that particular person, the surgeon, says out loud what his mistake was, and everybody in the room hears it, it has an amazing effect on the rest of the organization because it makes it uh, legitimate for people to say out loud what they could have done different, what they did wrong, and and the whole group learns from it. That's That's what boosting the information processing means. Beautiful. And that links nicely to number five, which is take advantage of the clunkers we'll get to in a moment. But three, I see as a kind of a, a, a preparing the environment in a way three is prepare for serendipity by deliberating breaking deliberately breaking a routine. And as you say in the book, many organizations have routines and processes and procedures, they've got successful and they have ways of doing things. And it's not until you actually break those that you can actually break open your mind and think slightly differently. 
I don't know if I shared this story in our last podcast. Uh, the story of British Air. Maybe I told this story. Did I tell it or should I just go tell ahead, it? man? Go ahead. Yeah. Um, you know, in the early 80s, uh, British Air had uh, was not well known for customer service. It had previously been um, sort of a, uh, had a sort of a military culture and they weren't really customer oriented. They were supported by public sector funds. So they didn't, and that changed in the early 80s. They had to compete for customers and they couldn't get into the mindset of customer service. So they had an offsite retreat at a hotel to strategize about what they could do for customer service. And one of the uh, vice presidents, I think it was vice president of marketing, went around in each of the hotel rooms that they were gonna sleep in that night and took out the beds and put in an airline seat instead. So that night they were all sleeping in airline seats. So when they got back together to think about what could they do for customer service, they got some novel ideas about comfort. <laughs> uh, that's an example of disrupting a routine and disrupting a routine doesn't feel comfortable necessarily, but you know, you, you, um, that's a pretty dramatic story. The other stories when I think about my, my friend that I write about Jay Parks, um, the actor, you know, who talked about, well, how do you possibly, when you're in a play and you're saying the exact same lines eight times a week for 50 weeks a year, how do you not become rote? And actors have a way of doing this. They're, they're little tricks they do to disrupt a way of doing things so that each other pays attention, you know, so they'll change their tone of voice or something. It's what it, so that creates the, uh, makes the other listen better. So it's as if you're actually in a real conversation. So they do little things, inflection points, or, you know, or hit each other on the shoulder or something. That's something that had never happened before in rehearsal or in other performances. It wakes you up and you have to pay attention in a new way. You can, little things like that help. I love that. And it's so important for, even job satisfaction, because you, in in sport, we say never run the same lap twice, because you, you try and experiment a little bit, because it just becomes boring to you otherwise, and you try and beat your time or do it slightly differently each time nudging and becoming slightly better. The other one that I absolutely love, Frank, and is so important, particularly to the audience of this show, who are change makers and challengers in organizations, and who are sick of doctor knows within organizations saying no all the time. And here you say expand the vocabulary of yes, because it's easy to say no, it's easy to shut somebody down because there's safety in saying no. And I love this point. It's so crucial for organizational success. I call it the glamour of no, it has a it has almost a magnetic quality. It's so easy to say no. And and you always have reasons because there's history involved and you could a fear involved and you could run fearful scenarios pretty easily. Um, so, so you almost have to deliberately create new possibilities of appreciation in order to expand the imagination um, to create what I call this a grammar of yes. So that there's a bias in the direction of yes. Um, you know, it's inevitable that organizations over time become more routine oriented, become more bureaucratic. As I said, I, I work for the US Navy and there are so many rules and regulations and, and we never hear 
this regulation has been eliminated or this rule has now been eliminated. That never happens. What you get is more rules added, more regulations added, and it's exhausting. It creates a sense of, you know, kind of a learned helplessness in an organization if that keeps happening. So I'm saying, I think, you know, um, if I were going to give leaders advice about this, I'd say create more of an appreciative awareness uh, to say yes to possibilities, to say yes to experimentation. Um, part of it might mean um, doing what I call an appreciative inquiry. And we do a lot of work through appreciative inquiry where I, um, where I, when I went to graduate school and came from at Case Western Reserve to deliberately look for um, moments that were positive. It helps to nourish the imagination um, to say yes to proposals. It takes a deliberate effort. Left to our own devices, uh, the, the default is no. So that takes a really deliberate effort. It, it reminded me, Frank, of, of the practice of gratitude as well, that you're actually training yourself to, to see the world differently through, I'm grateful for the stuff you might take for granted. Maybe it's privilege and you don't even know what you have. But I thought that it's like an organizational version of that because you rewire how you think and then you're going to spot more opportunities to say yes. And partially, it may, it, there's a reason this happens. One is... Um, um, those who argue no or against trying something always have data on their side and or fear on their side. They can easily run out everything that could possibly go wrong. Those who are proposing it don't have that on their side. All they have is intuition or it might work. And it's a very tentative sense of what's possible. That's why um, how you discuss possibilities matters. If you keep asking for, I mean, you need, I mean, let's be reasonable. You need, you need a good logic. You need some sort of a mindset behind it. You have to have a good, strong intuition. Um, but you can't hold up to ideas the same rubric that you do for other parts of the other way, problem-solving orientation organizations. It has to be almost the opposite of problem-solving um, to allow tentative intuitions to have their day it reminded me also of i you know one of the i i would call it a slight bit of shame that i have is i used to coach uh, rugby so i coached when i retired from rugby i coached for a little while and one of the players i remember when i saw him I was like kind of going this this guy's he's not going to make it and I thought about the great book, Mr. Fuller quote, which our audience always uh, emails me and say, you overused that quote. <laughs> it's that there's nothing in a caterpillar that tells you it's going to be a butterfly and that you can't tell. It's so difficult to tell. And if you have a culture of the glamour of no, you're going to kill so many caterpillars. You know, back to our first show, I, I told the story of Miles Davis. There was no way, in fact, when they interviewed those who were in the kind of blue session in 1959 afterwards, um, you know, uh, especially Jimmy Cobb, who's still alive, they also, we had no idea that session was going to be so important. We just were doing our, what we did. We tried things. We just say what would happen. We had no idea it was going to have that kind of impact. It's kind of like your butterfly, you know, your butterfly um, analogy. Um there's no way 
Miles Davis could have given the four or five reasons why I should try this on Monday afternoon at Capitol Records. Um, there was no board of directors that said, give us the, the justification and rationale for why you're going to try this experiment. He, he, he didn't have access to it himself. He didn't know himself. He just thought, oh, let's see where this goes. Um, it takes a special kind of care to allow that ideas like that to, uh, to get nurtured. And the next point is so crucial for that. So this is where like that physician, that doctor who said, I left a sponge inside somebody. By the way, I don't know if you ever used to watch South Park. I, you know, one of my guilty pressures was watching that cartoon South Park. And there's a guest uh, appearance by George Clooney in it. If you remember, he was in the show Eeyore, and he accidentally replaces Kenny, which is one of the cars, characters, his heart with a baked potato. <laughs> and I thought about that. He actually he took it out of the microwave instead of the, the heart out of the fridge. Anyway, that George Clooney stays an actor and not a real physician. <laughs> exactly. But the next one is, what do you do with that as an organization? You need to take advantage of the clunkers. And again, betraying my background, Frank, in sport, I thought about how many times you can prep a team to understand what another team is going to do. But sometimes the best scores they'll ever score are off a mistake or a, a pass that bounces off the ground and beats a defender because it bounced off the ground. And here you take advantage of clunkers. Yeah, exactly. Um, if you say that you um, legitimize experimentation, if you allow experiments, you can be sure there's going to be mistakes because there's going to be unanticipated events happen. The question is, how do you approach them? And I mean, the literature is rife with stories of where mistakes happened and organizations came up with innovations. I mean, the post-it note example from 3M has almost become trite that that got discovered as a, as a mistake. It was an experiment someone was doing, working in a choir who wanted, you know, he had little pieces of paper and he wanted the paper to stick because he was the hymns for the next for the next mass, he wanted this hymns, the paper back so we could get to the hymns quickly. So he invented this little, he found a particular um, adhesive that had been discarded because it wasn't strong enough, you know, for, um, for, for the products. So he found this discarded adhesive and discovered what we now in post-it notes, which is now probably the largest selling product in 3M. There's all kinds of stories like that. Um, I think that that's important. There's something else that's important, and that is um, if we're able to talk openly about mistakes, we learn about ourselves. Um, because when we're not, we shut down our own self-inquiry. Um, because we spend our time defending what happened, trying to anticipate attacks, and giving rationales for what happened or why why you did something. When you're in that mindset, um, you close off the possibility of your own surprise. Um, so again, I mentioned before, in order for this to work, you have to lower status differences. But also have to have this aesthetic of forgiveness to forgive each other for efforts um, that exceeded our grasp. Um, I mean, of course, not all mistakes should be treated that way. Careless errors must be dealt with directly. Carelessness is unforgivable. But um, 
But aesthetic of forgiveness with one another would open up lots of possibilities. As another one other thing I'll say, because I, I I teach in a program where we have senior military leaders, often uh, flag officers, uh, admirals, um, and captains and admirals. And I say this is that at a certain point in your career, after you've been really successful, you're not going to learn much about yourself by another success. One more success isn't going to add much to your life. The real learning, the real self-learning is going to happen when you have a crucible or even, you know, it doesn't have to be as dramatic as a crucible, but a mistake. The real self-learning happens at mistakes after a while. And, um, you know, too often I see executives that have gone dead from the neck down because they're more interested in continuing their reputation um, I remember this is a, this is a I've never haven't thought about this in years, but since I mentioned admirals, there was um, back in the oh gosh, it must have been mid '90s, or a little bit later than that, maybe when computers were just coming around and email was just getting started. Um, at the uh, at a particular naval base, this admiral. Um, was setting up, they were setting up his computer and trying, you know, he's trying to do email and everything. And one of his lieutenants, who was a former student of mine, noticed that he just wasn't getting it. He wasn't, um, he wasn't fully engaged in it. And he turned to him and he said, Sir, would it help you if I came over to your house this weekend and set this up for you? And I said, That'd be great. Would you please do it? And what was happening was, he didn't want to look in front of his people. He didn't want to look like he didn't know what he was doing. And this this guy, I'll never forget this, was so intuitive. He intuited this and said, so what, he, what he was thinking, he didn't say it out loud, was this guy needs safety to look stupid for a minute. You got to be safe enough to be stupid. And um, inside an organization where he's trying to continue to look like an admiral who's in charge of things, he couldn't do that. He had to look like he knew what he was doing right at the time he was supposed to be a learner. And uh, so I, I don't know, it made me think of that story. I always remember that. It made me think, Frank, about how if, if you imagine the resistance to try something new happened with children. And unfortunately, we see this with children, depending on if they have autocratic teachers or not. But Imagine a child was going, no, I, I don't want to try that because I can't predict what would happen. <laughs> it's yeah, crazy. It happens with kids. Yeah. I just thought of another story. Is that what I tell it? It's, it's, a, it's not directly related to this last point, but it's this issue of status and uh, being able to go through status barriers. It's, it's a story. It's, it's, I actually have a recording of this interview we did with the former CNO, the Chief of Naval Operations. I'm Vern Clark, who was the longest serving uh, CNO in the, I think since the since the first one in the history of the United States. So he I think he had the job for five years, and it's usually a three year billet. Uh, when he was a young commander on a ship, he was um, you know, pulling into a a dock, that, and he didn't know the area very well. So uh, he asked one of the sister ships to send over a crewman who had been through that area and knew the area so they could just have him on on deck uh and um and help guide and uh so the guy they flew him over on a helicopter didn't know admiral clark um they're in the uh 
up steering with the ship, steering the ship and looking out and the and it's all foggy. The fog rolls in. And this guy comes up to Admiral Clark and grabs him by the arm and he says, Sir, if you continue on this course in speed, you will be aground in six minutes. And Admiral Clark said, thank you, thank you. <laughs> I got it. And he took it over. And that's a fascinating story because um, for someone who doesn't know the captain of the ship, the skipper of the ship, to physically touch him is outrageous. And one of the things enlisted people never touch an officer. That's like absolutely never. But especially the skipper of the ship to go and say, sir, keep on going like this. Your ship's going to be aground. He said, thank you. I have it. Um, it's, and it's, there's something about Admiral Clark as a person, but he must have communicated uh, throughout the deck that he uh, he is approachable, that status doesn't win the day for him. And I remember I said to him something like, um, Admiral, I think that guy saved your career. And he said, you're absolutely right. You know, If the ship had gone aground, Admiral Clark would have been fired. Beautiful. Anyway, I just remember that. I started talking about the Navy. I don't know why I came up with that story. Beautiful. No, it's not a clunker great. example, but it's an example of uh, how important it is to create a culture where status is not seen as so that's gold man gold gold it, it like i just want to say like i don't follow a routine with this show at all so it's, yeah. the, the more serendipity the better and yeah, i'm almost out of stories that's the good news so <laughs> it'll go faster from here on. stories are better man i, I love the stories and uh, the next one is an easy one because i said I'd follow the solo and support except for one because number six is give others the chance to get to solo every so, every so often, which is so important in organizational design and for innovation. And by the way, one of the, well, yeah, give people a chance to solo from time to time so you can bring up uh, lots of voices. One of the great things about crowdsourcing is that it allows for multiple soloing. You know, I think that's one of the great discoveries when you crowdsource something. You're bringing in lots of ideas, lots of proposals. But in groups, um, I, and I might have mentioned this earlier, MIT did this study to um, measure intelligence in groups. Is it okay if I repeat something I said the last one? And I don't even remember if I told this story, so maybe I didn't. Uh, you know, there was this infatuation with IQ. Can you measure intelligence of a person? And this was... Could they measure the intelligence of a group? Are there, are there some groups that are smarter than others? And they did hundreds of groups they studied, and um, they found out that they could demarcate smart groups from groups that were less smart in terms of performance and intelligence. And they found three factors. And one was this point here, distribution of participation, that um, groups where where participation was fairly equally distributed and everyone had a chance to speak up every now and then did much better than groups where they relied on one or two experts. So that's important to realize because there's a bias towards leaning on experts or leaning on people who are confident or leaning on extroverts who are comfortable talking and introverts feel relieved that extroverts keep talking. So that, that happens in groups. You have to deliberately go out of your way to bring up all the voices. There are two, you know, in the field of organizational development, this, we have this thing called the nominal group technique that's been around for a long time. And basically it's, you go, you deliberately look for, you go one by one and get input and go around and until everybody has a chance to speak. 
and to deliberately go out of the way to do that, that raises every voice. Or the other is to have a rule in the group that no person can speak twice until every single person has spoken once. Um, that's always a, um, that's, that's a, you know, it's a minimal rule that guarantees more um, equitable distribution of participation. So important, Frank. I, I was thinking about that one where a brainstorming session, for example, that you get that effect where the dominant voices, the hippos rule. And I'm, I'm a fan of a thing called quiet storming, where you give people the material you're going to brainstorm in advance, because many people need time to sleep on it and to think about it. Introverts, for example, can't be put on the spot. We're all on a spectrum somewhere. So the spectrum of response is really important. How do you manage that in your workshops? Well, you know, some version of what I just said is del deliberately, you know, when I'm teaching a class, I teach case study method. So I do no lecturing, I do all questioning. And, um, you know, in the military, there's a lot of type A personalities, but there's also, you know, an engineering mentality, there's also a lot of introverts. And some students left their own devices will just take notes and listen. So I deliberately, in fact, before a class, before class starts, I have a list of five people I'm going to call on. And it's based on what's happened so far, you know, in the semester or the quarter. And those, okay, I haven't heard from this person for a while. And I know that I'm going to cold call these five people. And it has, the effect is, of course, it makes everybody prepare for class because you never know when you're going to get called on. But it also s sort of reminds an over-participative person about the presence of these others. Um, and it's fine when someone, you know, when you're when somebody like they could put them on the spot, you know, you know, they take time to figure it out. I don't know. They feel awkward silence. So, so awkward silences can be very rich because the whole group is thinking. The whole group is doing thought trials. And um, uh, it, I'm, I'm not afraid of silence anymore. I used to be. I used to think, oh my gosh, I ask questions, you know, let's move on. Because you know, now I think those silences are moments of richness. <laughs> That's from your music, man. The, the gaps are as important as the notes. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. yeah. I, I, the next one, I, you know, I, I thought I thought of that video, and it's still on YouTube for those interested. I, I use it in my workshops, the bus to Abilene, where, where, which is a great military uh, term and a video that was created in probably the 60s, maybe or 70s It's a black and white video. But the next one reminded me of this, this is number seven, which is to celebrate comping. So the, the, the team, the group can complete your thinking. Yeah, um, you know, the idea that um, this role in comping in jazz um, means to accompany or, you know, to support the soloist to think well, to think out loud and well and perform well, that it's sort of celebrating supportive behavior. Um, so people who blend, who ask questions, who support people are thinking out loud, uh, affirm, um, it's, you know, it's a difference between, it's not criticizing, that's part of the issue, you know, criticizing is not comping, criticizing shuts people down, it's, it's a non-judgmental way of supporting. And, you know, organizations would be great if they imagine putting that in their performance appraisal systems, you know, that when it came time perform, performance appraisal, they would be judged on something like, how well did you support others to think out loud? How well were you a catalyst? Um, for someone else's idea to come to fruition, even if you weren't getting the credit for it. So 
um, yeah, comping is uh, is an important important part of innovation. We don't usually pay attention to it, and jazz musicians do. We we pay attention to that. It's also something you see in sport. If you if you have a team of Galactico players, it's important to have maybe a lesser talented player, but one who's like cohesive and brings everybody together. And as you say, encourage maybe somebody when they're having a bad day. So important, and teams are waking up to that. You mentioned sports. I'm sorry for interrupting you here. Um, Steve Nash, the great point guard, um, who came out of Santa Clara here near where I'm living right now in Berkeley, California. Um, he, he he was a very famous point guard. And partially, there was a great interview with him he did with Charlie Rose. And they're trying to tell what was his magic? What did he do? And, you know, as he's bringing the ball down the court, he's sort of trying to work through a play. And he said he would notice guys on the team who maybe didn't, weren't having a good game. And he could tell by looking at their eyes that they were in this sense of self-doubt. So he would deliberately find ways to get that person in the play, to get them back on their toes. Like he'd be noticing. And so he would be feeding passes to the person who looks least likely to be able to handle it deliberately to make sure that they rise to the occasion. You know, it's really interesting. It's great to listen. I have a, he's in the, in my book. I put a little story in there about him. It's a, it's a, it's a really magical um, quote from him. So. Yeah, absolutely. Love that. And, and just to, so you know, it might be useful is uh, the New Zealand rugby team, which is the best rugby team in the world, the New Zealand all blacks, they have, they, they, coach the players in managing when they're going into the red zone mentally and they all have a little kind of practice where one player might stamp his feet another player might look up at the flag and it just reminds them to get back into the green zone mentally so they don't go and give away a penalty that could cost them the game and um, these things are so useful from from an organizational perspective but the next one i'm just conscious of, of our time is again you could say related to sport but certainly absolutely related to jazz which is if we think back to episode one when we talked about that famous session with miles davis create minimal structures yeah we tend to structure the hell out of things partially out of fear because we want to guarantee that something's working so we'll create lots of rules and structures and reporting relationships and pert charts is to check in and make sure things are going along um what makes innovation work and improvisation work is just the right amount of structure not don't overstructure things um and especially through time if you can coordinate things through time by minimal structures um it keeps everybody updated and um and it, it enhances the possibility of innovation there's a thing in the group literature um there's a built-in minimal structure in in groups that's not well known it's called punctuated equilibrium. And it's this pattern that's been noticed that if you take a task force or a group that exists over a period of time, and one of the things you want to make sure if you have a task force or a group is you do have a deadline. There has to be an endpoint in the in, for, for a project to work well. If you pay attention at the halfway point, something happens in the group. That's why they call it punctuated equilibrium. It comes from complexity theory. And at that moment, the group is ripe to converge. There's a ripeness that's ready to get them to converge. And then another moment happens at the halfway point between that, that moment and the end of the group. 
And if someone pays attention to the rhythm of a group, the way we would pay attention to rhythm in music, it, it opens up possibilities uh, for interventions that could be very healthy. One of the things, Frank, I, I, and I love your opinion, I'm conscious again of, of time, is in such a hierarchical organization like the army, a lot of leaders, there's a lot of fear about changing the way they've done things, I'm sure. And, and you see this in our organizational uh, design as well, where a, a leader comes in and starts to do things differently, maybe she decides, Oh, I'm going to be more fun, I'm going to drop the guard, I'm going to be myself. But many people will be out the snakes in the grass will be out kind of going, Oh, I don't know if it's the right thing. It's that transition from the old way to the new way. And it relates to number nine, which is to encourage serious play. It's a, it's an easy thing to say and absolutely delightful for an innovator to hear that, but very difficult for a, a leader in a an old legacy organization to encourage. Very difficult, especially since we're so encouraged about costs. We have to cut costs. How can you justify something that's playful or doesn't have immediate payoff? Um, but I mean, think about organizations like Southwest Airlines that do have, they have their set routines and they don't, they don't um, compromise on their routines, but they also have a playfulness in the culture that lifts everyone's spirit in the for a while, they were on the list of one of the best places to work. I don't know if they still are. Play is interesting. It's where experiment. That's the same thing as experimentation. I love that thing. Play, play often, so you can execute better. You know, um, whether Ideo had this expression: "Was it fail often and fail often, so you can succeed sooner?" Well, that means being a sort of a playful spirit to take results as the sort of a lightness of heart or generosity of spirit along the way. Um, it reminds me of something, I'm, I'm sorry for, for continuing on this, and this doesn't relate directly, but it's interesting. It's a study I read many years ago now, and I, I need to find it again, but it was a study that was done of um, mass shooters. I think it was done at a Baylor University, you know, uh, when the very first mass shooter in the United States was the guy who got on University of Texas in the tower and was shooting. And they found a bunch of mass shooters and see what do they have in common to do they did psychological studies and and they only found one thing in common and that is when they were kids they didn't play now that's interesting wow again i i wish i had access to that study right now i remember i read it in at um in my graduate studies and i'm going to go search for it as soon as this program is over uh, <laughs> okay. i mean playfulness is important for mental health i mean that's basically what that's one thing is telling us think about the moments in our intimate relationships and in our marriages and our and when playfulness playful spirit leaves our intimacy you're in trouble um you know that really is where um the the eroticism is and i don't mean sex i mean rot what eroticism really means it means generativity and aliveness um playfulness is important for our health Sorry, I, I'm trying to cut down on stories. No, no, man. Well, I'd, I'd go all day if we had the time. I, I, it's not. It's you know. I want to say I'd love to just listen and listen, and I'm just conscious of your time. But uh, with the play, I, I saw it in organizations I worked in, Frank, and 
it's it's like you say it's not only the people rot from the the neck down they rot upwards because they're going from meeting to meeting having to wear this mask and be this person that's not them and that that inner child dies it's just so sad man it's really really is so the next the next one is related to this which is i love this when you talked about this is it's the jams it's it's the it's it's the practice sessions when there's no rigorous rules or timelines or whatever that you experiment and you uncover and you make mistakes and you learn from those mistakes because it's the training session it's the practice session before the big lights the big friday night lights um but yeah it's a pl- this is a place where a lot of massive experimentation happens it's where i said earlier um it's where outsiders learn what it's like to be an insider you can ask naive questions and naive questions lead to new discoveries jamming um one of the ways organizations have done this, I mentioned crowdsourcing, um, but sometimes they've done sort of outsource and let customers complete their innovations, right? I mean, Apple has done this with um, allowing app- people to develop applications to put on. That, that's really interesting. But other organizations do this too. Instead of waiting until they get the program perfect, they'll put it out and let the customers, they'll open source it and let the customers add to it and perfect it. Um, that's It's hobbyists have a lot of fun doing that, in a, uh, especially in software development. So I'll, I'll let that go. I won't tell any more stories. <laughs> but you, you, even even this, I was just thinking about the the time restriction on on your time and, and our conversations. We're just getting to a, a point of gold, and then if the time restrictions in there, it stops. And this is what happens a lot with sessions. When you're doing a session, you can't get leaders' times. You can see why it's curtailed, and it's like we'll just get through it rather than actually expand and. Like you say, the yeah. silent moments, isn't it? It's it's a it's a case in point of that, but um, we'll we'll do it again, man, for sure. And I hope I hope you will write again. The last one is your own term, which I absolutely love, and a great one to finish on, which is to cultivate provocative competence, create expansive promises as occasions for stretching out into unfamiliar territory. I absolutely love this. Thank you. Um, I'm working on an article on this right now with um, Ethan Bernstein at Harvard Business School. Um, it's kind of a double vision. You know, leaders have a double vision. It means they see who you are at the moment and what you're doing, but they can also see what you're not doing but what you're, and you're capable of. Um, that's what pr- makes it provocative. It's double vision. But what really makes it provocative is that they do, they introduce a kind of disturbance or a variance that demands that you pay attention in a new way. In a way, the story I told about uh, British Air is like that, a little provocative, like to introduce a disturbance that made sure people asked different kinds of questions, they break out of routines. Um, One of the things it requires is that you, um, expression I got from uh, Bob Keegan, is the leader, um, you stay in place, you hold on, and you let go simultaneously. I should do that in the other uh, different direction. You hold on and you let go at the same time, but all the while you stay in place, meaning you let people continue to try again and try again and try again, because when they're in novel territory, they're never going to get it right the first time. Um, so it's an openness to a uh, discovery. Um, but I, I would imagine all of us have had some leader or teacher in our life who had provocative competence. 
it's a pretty good definition of love. I love that. And, and that's what that Buckminster Fuller quote's about. There's nothing in the caterpillar that tells you it's going to be a butterfly. Double vision is to see both the caterpillar and the butterfly at the same time. Frank, I have a final quote just to thank you. One that I pulled from the book that I absolutely love. And then I'm going to hand to you to close today's show and our wonderful two-part series. You said, rather than being isolated silo by silo, employees would work on multiple projects at the same time and be members of several overlapping teams. Cross silo conversations and interactions would create a conversational mode built around curiosity. Inquiry sentences would pepper the air. Where did that come from? How did you find that out? Why am I the only one who didn't seem to know about this? Why didn't we figure this out earlier? Why? Not because everybody wanted to act the expert, but because workers would never be satisfied with what they know, never completely confident that they are prepared for what is going to happen next. I absolutely love that. I took that from near the end of the book and I thought it was a way, just a way to thank you as well because the writing's fantastic. I absolutely love the book. And what about you? What's your final message to our audience? That's a great final message. <laughs> I haven't heard that. I was thinking, who wrote that? I haven't heard that. Now. You should write more, man. I, I look forward to, to your article coming down the line. And it's been an absolute pleasure. Last question is, where can people find you? Yes to the mess.org. Author of Yes to the Mess, Surprising Leadership Lessons from Jazz, Frank Barrett. It was an absolute pleasure. It's been great hanging out with you, Aiden. I hope we meet each other face to face sometime. I love that, man. Jam. We can jam together. What a cracking episode. Part two of Yes to the Mess with Frank Barrett buy a copy of the book. It is a great read. Before we finish up, I just want to thank our sponsor Zai, boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services enabling businesses to move funds with ease and enable multiple payment workflows. You can check out Zai at hellozai.com. See you soon.